Today we're talking with Alan Jacobs about his new book, The Year of Our Lord, 1943, Christian Humanism in an Age of Crisis, published by Oxford University Press. It came out not long ago. Uh, Mr. Jacobs is Distinguished Professor of Humanities in the Honors Program at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. He is the author of many other books, including most recently The Book of Common Prayer, a biography, and a critical edition of W.H. Auden's long poem, For the Time Being, a Christmas Oratorio. Jacobs is one of the most accomplished Christian literary critics of his generation. His essays, articles, and reviews have appeared in the Atlantic Monthly, First Things, The New Atlantis, and The American Conservative. He's never been published in Commonwealth, but you know it's never too late. Hope springs eternal. Alan, welcome, and thanks for joining us to talk about the Year of Our Lord. Thanks for inviting me. Now, this is a relatively short book, but its scope is impressively wide. In one way, it's a kind of group intellectual biography, but in another way, it's, it's more of a general history of a few ideas during the period just before, during, and after the Second World War. And it reminded me a little bit of Paul Eli's book, The Life You Save May Be Your Own, which is also a group biography, but it reminded me even more of Louis Manan's The Metaphysical Club, which is a book that tracks the long, painful birth of American pragmatism through uh, several significant American lives uh, at the turn of the last century. Now, in your book, like in Manan's book, the biographical element seems subordinate to a current of ideas. And I wanted to begin by asking why you chose to address these ideas in the way you did, historically and in the context of five particular writers. Yeah, well, those are uh, actually books I'm thrilled to be associated with. Paul Eli's book was one that was very much in my mind as a model. The standard academic way of writing a book like this would be to do an introduction and then a chapter on Maritan and then a chapter on Eliot and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that, first of all, seemed really boring, boring for me as a writer, but also it seemed something that would miss the point, which was the very strange confluence of ideas among these five writers, none of whom knew another very well. They were aware of one another's existence, but none of them were friends, none of them corresponded regularly, none of them spoke to the others. And yet their ideas all seemed to be converging on a very similar set of points. And so I thought the only way I could write about that convergence was to write a kind of braided narrative like the one that Paul Eli wrote. And what I wanted to do was to track a particular one of these figures to a particular point at which his or her ideas connected with the ideas of another figure in my little group, and then I would shift to that other figure. And then in that way, sort of leapfrog or hopscotch my way through the narrative. And the idea was to try to organize, to some degree by time, but within a kind of a loose temporal structure, ideas that were coming to the fore and then receding, and then new ideas would come to the fore, and to try to show how that energy manifested itself in different thinkers. And how did you come up with that final list of five thinkers? So it's, it's Jacques Maritain, T.S. Eliot, C.S. Lewis, W.H. Auden, and Simone Weil. I mean, the book has a, a little interlude titled Other Pilgrims, Other Paths that includes the mention of Dorothy Day, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and Graham Greene. But you do focus on these five, and I'm wondering how you came to choose those five in particular. I know you're an expert on, on the work of Lewis and Auden, but what about the others? Well, what happened was the germ of the book happened when 
I picked up a copy in a used bookstore of Maritan's book, Education at the Crossroads. And I brought it home and put it on the shelf and forgot about it. And one day I picked it up and looked at it. And I had recently been teaching Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man. And as I looked at Maritan's book, hadn't read it yet, I saw that it was a set of lectures that had been given at Yale University in January and February of 1943. And then I realized, that's really curious. Lewis was delivering the lectures that became the abolition of man at exactly that time. And then it's really Auden that I know best of all of these writers. And I happen to remember or something, I don't remember what it was that reminded me of it or put it before me. But Auden gave a lecture. He was teaching at Swarthmore College during the war, and he gave a lecture called Vocation and Society to the undergrads of Swarthmore. And it was at exactly the same time. And I thought that was immensely odd that in the middle of a war, there would be these three Christian intellectuals whose primary concern seems to have been education and the formation of young minds. And I thought that was a very strange thing for them to be focusing on right in the midst of this global conflict. And then I realized, as I studied and thought about it more, that mm, the same was true uh, for T.S. Eliot and Simone Weil. And all of these other figures that I talk about are people, you know, whom I, I can only gesture towards, who were thinking very seriously about what it means to be a faithful Christian in the middle of the war, but they weren't so relentlessly focused on the problem of education education, the problem of personal formation, as these five were. And so I realized that there was a kind of a sometimes harmonious and sometimes dissonant convergence of ideas there that I wanted to trace through. Yeah, one of the um, interesting divergences that your book examines is between two of these main characters, the two, the only two French figures, Jacques Maritain and Simone Weil. Maritain, of course, was a famous and very influential Catholic intellectual, and Vey was a, a kind of mystic who was drawn to Christianity but declined to enter the church, partly because she took the side of spiritual outsiders and partly because she was suspicious of the connection between orthodoxy and what she called force. Can you tell us yeah. a little more about, well, the debate that went on indirectly between Maritain and Vey? Maritain and his and then fiance Raisa, when they were university students in the first decade of the 20th century, were people of no particular religious belief, and in fact were uh, sort of early existentialists, as it were, and and confronting despair and wondering whether there was any way out of it. They even went so far as to make a suicide pact if they did not find some answer, if they did not find some meaning. And it was when they attended the lectures of Henri Bergson that they found a path that led them ultimately to the Catholic Church, in which they were thoroughly at home, though not without certain controversies and tensions, for the rest of their lives. They were very faithful son and daughter of the church. And I, I should say one other thing about that really briefly is that Maritain then ended up becoming, along with Etienne Jossin, one of the two scholars most responsible for articulating this vision of a kind of a, a 13 century pinnacle to medieval thought and Christian thought and Christian art as well as manifested in the cathedral at Chartres and the other great medieval cathedrals and in the work of, of Thomas Aquinas, that this was a kind of uh, a God.
gothic pinnacle of Christian intellectual and artistic life from which we have descended since then. Simone Weil, when she came, of course, born into a Jewish family, though she did not understand for some time that she was a Jew, they were completely non-observant. She was deeply attracted to the church, but the period that Maritain thought of as the high point in the history of Christian intellectual and spiritual life, she thought of as a period of what she called spiritual totalitarianism and was extremely angry with the church for its persecution of the Albigensians, the Cathars, in the 13th century. And she never really got over that and had this profound identification with those who were outside the church, those who were persecuted. She wanted to be persecuted herself in many ways and so refused to be baptized. She believed the things that the church taught, or at least many of them, but she felt that the church had adopted an attitude of spiritual totalitarianism, of persecuting rather than welcoming and gently correcting the heretic, et cetera, et cetera. And so she made her place among the outsiders and the excluded. She knew perfectly well that she was going very strongly against a very powerful narrative of which Maritam was the most famous proponent. She doesn't refer to him by name very often, but in passage after passage after passage in her writings in the 1940s, you can tell that the unspoken, unacknowledged antagonist of, of her work is Maritam. So what was, from Maritam's point of view, the high point of Christendom was, from her point of view, the moment when the church sort of betrayed its most important commitment, right? That's exactly right. That was the moment when it assumed the right to exercise force. For her, the church should always be Christ-like in the very specific sense of being the victim rather than the perpetrator of force, and to give up its life of its own accord to those who would be violent against it. And anything other than that was, to her, a betrayal of the message of Jesus. So she was uncompromising on this point, as she was on virtually every point <laughs> in which she believed. One of her friends said that she had this very strange combination of extraordinary personal humility and an absolute refusal to admit that she could be wrong, even by a millimeter, about anything that she believed in. And so she could not see any validity to a church which exerted force over those who resisted it or were in error. Another major theme in your book is the opposition between technocracy and what the title calls Christian humanism. I mean, this may be the, the main theme of your book. And as you know, not all of your five thinkers were ready to celebrate humanism as such. Simone Weil in particular right. had serious doubts about it. But yeah. by the end of your book, it seems like you're talking more about Christian personalism than about humanism. And I'm wondering yeah. if there's an important difference between those two terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Maritain is the most important figure here, it seems to me, because he's the one who says that Christianity alone is able to articulate a true humanism, and that true humanism is personalism. Personalism is is the only legitimate and sort of fully orbed form of humanism. So most of these writers 
Lewis is really the one exception. Lewis never used the word humanism. It had a very specific meaning to him as a historian of the 16th century and 16th century literature and culture. But all of them will use the term humanism at some time or another and use it with a degree of approbation as long as they can be careful to define what they specifically mean by it. So one of the themes that runs through all of these writers, again, with the the exception of Lewis, is the distinction between a true and a false humanism, that what goes by the name of humanism in intellectual circles, they say, is not a true or actual humanism at all. It's a kind of an amputated humanism. And what all of these figures want to offer as a response to that is some version, I think it's fair to say, of what Maritain calls integral humanism, a humanism that is based on being in right relation to God as well as in right relation to your neighbor. Right. And uh, one way um, this humanistic tradition comes up, especially towards the end of the book, is in the attitude of, of all of these writers to the arts. So you write that T.S. Eliot believed that the social function of poetry was to shape and promote the proper feelings, the sensibility adequate to our experience. Two of your five thinkers were public intellectuals who were and probably still are best known as poets, Eliot and Auden. And all five of these thinkers were profoundly interested in the social function of the arts and poetry in particular. Maritain wrote books about aesthetics. C.S. Lewis was a literary scholar who also wrote fiction. And one of Simone Weil's most important essays is about the Iliad. Today, it's hard to think of a major public intellectual in the English-speaking world who's also or, or primarily a poet. Does that fact tell us anything important about how the, these issues were settled after World War II? I think it probably does, though I think there's another part of the story there, and that is something which has been going on for a couple of hundred years now, is the shrinking role of poetry in relation to other literary arts, and especially the novel. So as the novel became the dominant form of literary art, from having been in the 18th century uh, a kind of a popular entertainment that serious writers did not aspire to. Serious writers wanted to write epic poems, not novels. But as the novel sort of grew in stature and came to displace poetry, so that poetry became a kind of a secondary art form, and we began to celebrate our novelists more than we celebrate our poets, that's part of the story, too. So it's possible for a Christian literary figure to have a certain public stature as, for example, Marilyn Robinson does right now. Sure. Um, but it's much harder to imagine that role being taken by a poet. So part of the story is the decline of poetry relative to fiction in its public power and prestige. So that's part of the story. The other part of the story, though, is just a a general decline of public willingness to acknowledge literary figures as having a kind of cultural authority. Uh, And I think you can see that in, for instance, in the 1940s, you can still see people like Lewis and Reinhold Niebuhr on the cover of Time magazine. A decade later, that becomes almost impossible to imagine. And I would say a a comparable figure from uh, a figure of comparable authority a decade after the time that I'm writing about would be John von Neumann, 
the Hungarian immigrant to the U.S. who oversaw the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton and also was one of the leading figures in the creation of the uh, the hydrogen bomb. Von Neumann shuffles back and forth between Princeton and, and Washington, D.C. Uh, at Princeton, he's building the computers that will do the calculations that are required to accurately detonate the, the hydrogen bombs that he's getting the funding for in Washington, D.C. When von Neumann, von Neumann died, in 1957, I think it is, the, the time and life are both just full. This is these two most popular American magazines are just full of encomia to his greatness. And this idea that there was someone who set a direction for an entire nation, and he did it through his command of science and technology. I think there's, there's a real changing of the guard in that decade from the mid-40s to the mid-50s. And I think the writers that I'm writing about are people who were trying to to make sort of a last gasp effort at restoring humanistic learning, shall we call it, the poetry, theology, philosophy, to restore them to a kind of central cultural place. But my argument is that it came too late, that the momentum of technocracy was so great. And it was great in part because it was the technocrats who were winning the war. Paul Kennedy's recent book, Engineers of Victory, is a book about how, you know, it was the engineers, uh, it was the manufacturers, it was the scientists who were the ones that won the war. What did poets, novelists, theologians, and philosophers have to do with it, right? right. And that became a source of technocracy's further and deeper entrenchment in authority. And so these figures I write about were incredibly imaginative and incredibly energetic and incredibly smart, but their their influence just simply declined, and their successors have had even less influence. Uh, which I guess I think that's the main reason why Ross Douthat said that my book is depressing. <laughs> and it is, in a way, it is depressing. You know, this is not how I would have wanted the story to uh, to come out, but it's the actual way it did come out. And you end with an afterword where you introduce a, a sixth figure, a generation yeah. younger than these others, whose career emerged after the war. And this is Jacques Ellul, a French Protestant. And he's most famous in this country, probably for the technological society. You write about that and you yeah. write about how for him, technocracy was the expression of a, of a whole worldview, which he called technique. And this was yeah. a worldview that was committed to two things above all, efficiency and objectivity. And it tended to annihilate everything that couldn't be reduced to one of those two terms. It had its own, it has its own method of formation, which you call psychotechnique. Can you, can you tell us what that term means and what its uh, visible manifestations are today? Right. So Ellul's concept of psychotechnique is a bit elusive, uh, but I think what he essentially means is this, the process by which human beings are habituated to seeing technique, technology, as the solution to their problems. It is, uh, Eliot puts, makes the point very similarly when he says that as technology, as society becomes more fully technological, its self-understanding becomes technological. It inframes itself in a technological way. That's when you have the reign of technique, as it will calls it. 
Eliot's phrase for that is that it understands problems of life as problems of engineering. You get exactly the same point made in Michael Oakeshott's 1947 essay, Rationalism and Politics, where he says, you know, rationalism is the way of conceiving of politics as a problem-solving discipline. A much more recent articulation of the, the exact same point, just a few years ago, Evgeny Morozov's book, To Save Everything, Click Here, is a book about what he calls technological solutionism. And so getting back to Elul, Elul's notion of psychotechnique is the whole conjunction of ways by which our society habituates us to conceiving of our lives as a series of problems in need of engineering solutions, solutions which can be provided by technology. And that's, by the way, I think it's very relevant that probably Elul's second most famous book here or elsewhere is his book on propaganda. And propaganda is the, the whole collection of ways in which a particular ideology can be confirmed in the society as a whole. And so psychotechnique is something that we have all been so habituated into, according to Elul, that we are rarely aware that there is a different way to think about the world than as a series of problems in need of external solutions. Right. Elul's outlook in, in that particular book, The Technological Society, I think it's fair to describe them as pessimistic, but maybe maybe not quite despairing, because as you point out, as a believer, he did hold out some hope for a miraculous intervention, an unexpected solution right. that couldn't be couldn't be theoretically mapped out ahead of time. No, so, that's exactly right. But he was specific and intentional and explicit in saying that it was going to require a miraculous intervention, that this was something that Christians, there was no room for optimism, yeah. but there was room for hope. There were no human means by which he could foresee the reign of technique ending, but eschatological hope remains. So Elu always said that he, that you should not read his is more secular books in separation from his theological books, that his his more theological reflections provided the context within which these seemingly utterly pessimistic other books could be read. And I think that's that's a good point, but that's just not the way that it's worked out. Most people read only the secular books and therefore see Elul as someone who has no hope whatsoever, which is not true. Right. Well, I'm wondering what you think a miracle of that kind would look like. Is, it, is the kind of radical cultural regeneration your five thinkers hoped for possible without some kind of disaster that wipes the slate clean? I mean, the Second World War was uh, a huge disaster, of course, and yet right. it didn't cure us of uh, our technocratic mindset. So what would, if not that? You know, I don't know. I am, uh, you know, depend on which day of the week you talk to me, I can be, I can sound more hopeless or more hopeful. But right now, we are in a period in which there seems to be increasing frustration with the overreach of the big tech companies, especially the big media companies, and the anger being directed right now at Facebook and at Twitter, and people actually leaving Facebook and Twitter, not in vast numbers, but in sufficient numbers for it to be a source of 
enormous worry to both of those corporations and therefore a source of uh, at least potential hope for me. It is, I think, probably going to be the case that people striving to extricate themselves from technocratic control will be in the minority, but the distinct minority. But I do think that they may become a large enough minority that they can have a kind of countercultural presence and can remind people that uh, we do not have to live in the way that Facebook and Twitter want us to live. So maybe that's too hopeful, but I really do see enough signs of what some people call the tech lash, the backlash against tech, this particular kind of technology anyway. I think it's a real thing, and I'm hoping that it accelerates in the coming years, but I don't know whether it will. Alan Jacobs' new book is titled The Year of Our Lord, 1943, Christian Humanism in an Age of Crisis. You can read David Sessions' review of the book in Commonwealth. Alan, thanks again for being with us. Thank you very much for inviting me.